Hi, this is Wesley Yang, and you are listening to the Year Zero Podcast. For today's installment of Current Events in Year Zero, I will be speaking with Candace Jackson, who was an Assistant Secretary of Education under the Trump administration. She was the lead official in charge of the Office of Civil Rights within that department, and in that capacity, led the overhaul of Title IX regulations concerning a range of hot-button issues, chief among them the regulation of campus sexual harassment and assault, and the treatment of transgender issues on college campuses. She has since then returned to private practice and emerged on Twitter as one of the most incisive critics of gender ideology. In the conversation that follows, Jackson describes the multi-year and very arduous rulemaking process in which the administration engaged in an attempt by their own account, to restore the principles of free speech and due process and hold in balance the rights of the accusers and the accused in campus sexual assault and harassment proceedings. She provides a very detailed explanation of that process and a summary of new regulations offered by the Biden administration to replace those rules. We end up talking in particular about the conceptual difficulties and practical consequences emerging from the administration's overriding of the category of sex by the category of gender identity. In Jackson's view, this is a fateful decision that will have broad-ranging consequences that will transform the character of student life on American universities, and that is part of a broader project whose influence will soon be felt across a range of American institutions and leaving no aspect of American life untouched in the years to come. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes, thanks for having me. So the the way I'm thinking about this is um, I just have many, many questions for you um, and would like to talk about many things, um, but I would like to make this be a podcast about Title IX, and then we can follow up on some other stuff um, because it's such a huge subject. So uh, I'll begin now. I have as my guest today, Candace Jackson, who is an attorney and uh, a previous appointee to the Department of Education under President Trump, who worked on, among other things, uh, issues pertaining to Title IX. And we will be discussing today the very rich, fascinating, and rather disturbing subject of that piece of legislation and the executive agency that engaged in a really remarkable and still not not fully appreciated ideological adventure from that office. Before we go any further, um, I'd just like for you to talk a little about your your journey within the law and how you ended up occupying the position you did back then. Sure, yeah, thanks so much for, for having me here with you today. Uh, I've been an attorney for about 20 years now, a lot in private practice and a lot of uh, experience with uh, employment and educational um, non-discrimination, harassment uh, cases and policies. Um, I got involved in the the uh, Trump campaign in 2016 from the angle of uh, years ago after the Clintons had left office, having written a book uh, chronicling Um, and interviewing a lot of the women that had been unfortunate enough to cross paths with Bill Clinton. And so when Trump, when it became Trump versus Hillary, um, I I started speaking up and working with the campaign to uh, frankly neutralize the accusation that, well, you know, Trump is going to be horrible for women. 
um, when he's running against somebody that, in my view, had a, a lifelong history of, of terrorizing and uh, committing retribution uh, against women very unfairly. So that that's how I got involved with the Trump campaign and then uh, interviewed with uh, Secretary DeVos when, when she took office in the education department and uh, just a couple of months into the uh, 2017 um, administration went went to work in D.C. So, so the book concerned Hillary's role in uh, tamping down what were called bimbo eruptions back in uh, the 90s, I believe. That's right. Yep. So Paula Jones and Juanita Broderick and yeah. Uh, what did you, uh, did you know that you were going to be dealing with Title IX issues when you uh, went into office or did you have a an understanding of what had happened yes. under Obama? And can you say what your understanding of the Dear Colleague letters on both campus issues and uh, gender identity issues. What was your understanding of what they were and what did you discover once you got into office? Yeah, well, like a, like a lot of people, you know, I had seen toward the tail end of the Obama administration the way that the Education Department and the Justice Department under Obama really, in my view, uh, viewed themselves as not just executive branch agencies that are there to enforce current law, but but truly taking it as a, a badge of pride to try to push the law into, into directions they wish it was. That's how I looked at it. And in doing that, they had issued in, you know, 2016-ish, um, started to issue a lot of, of guidance uh, that, that started pushing uh, gender identity overriding sex in laws that deal with sex discrimination like Title IX. And then going back to uh, 2011 and 2014, the Obama administration had already been really revamping what sexual harassment and assault on campus uh, was, was supposed to mean in terms of Title IX, not by regulating on it or going to Congress and asking for a more specific statute to deal with assault on campus, but just by edict, just by issuing guidance letters that they kind of tried to have it both ways, in my view, by, on the one hand, these guidance letters aren't technically legally binding, but the way that the departments would enforce the guidance letters against schools made it feel very compulsory. And and part of the problem, so part of the problem is procedural like that, when, when an agency starts to enforce rules that that go outside the bounds of, of its authority. But then substantively, it was bothersome as well, because while it was uh, a positive thing to draw attention to the way that schools historically have had a pattern of uh, not paying enough attention to sexual harassment and assault in schools and on campuses, you can't just throw out the window and bypass uh, basic... Uh, educational environment freedoms, like the importance of uh, free speech and academic freedom in and out of the classroom. And so when you're when you're talking about a, sen- a, a subject as sensitive as sex or the role of men and women in society, there are a range of views that were start were, that were starting to be considered illegal and and prohibited sexual harassment without a lot of regard or even analysis. Uh, for for whether certain interactions or exchanges or essays even should be protected uh, uh, under under free speech, and then on the due process side, it was equally as disturbing because the guidance letters out of the Obama administration gave very short shrift to to any concept of a fair process of, of due process. So if you're if if you're accused on campus of having harassed or or assaulted 
somebody, uh, the, the way that the department was pushing schools to do something about it and take it seriously really ended up skipping from almost allegation to punishment. And that that needed to be remedied. So when we came into the office, that, that was high on our agenda to take a look at what was going on under Title IX with respect to, you know, we're dealing with a, a, a statute that's supposed to be about equal access to education on the basis of sex. And so trying to for the first time, describe in a legally appropriate and binding way where that line is between a school's responsibility to make sure that nobody is being harassed or assaulted, and yet uh, also leaving that breathing room in an in a educational environment, both at K through 12, where, where young people are growing up and still learning social interactions with each other, and at higher ed, where it's, where it's uh, crucially important to maintain uh, free and open debate and, and pursuit of, of truth and exchange of ideas. Uh, so that was our goal when we came in and, and started uh, taking a look at what, what would be the, the principled and practical ways to require schools to deal with reports and incidents of sexual harassment. So you had been on the plaintiff side of this issue uh, prior to entering government. So, so you're well aware of the, of the things that lead people to sue and the frustrations that those who seek uh, recourse for having been assaulted or harassment might feel, but the remedies that were then proposed, such as the you know single investigator model, the 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 imposition of um, the lowest standard of scrutiny for a finding of guilt, you know, taken together, uh, and then the you know the the expansion of the definition of what it means to engage in a sexual assault and to make the prohibited conduct. Encompass, as Jenny Soak Gerson and her husband uh, wrote in an in a in a famous law review article called "The Sex Bureaucracy," encompasses nearly everything that students are already doing. So they we're, we're proceeding from uh, from a presumption of guilt in the way the the crime is constructed, and we we are skipping all of the various elements of fair process by having any kind of ability to. Uh, question your accuser to to know to know what you're accused of to present contrary evidence in re, in response to knowing what you've been accused of uh, these very basic elements of what we have all understood to be due process were were as a matter of uh, principle uh, circumvented um, in response to to action by the Department of Justice. Um, so what did you? But you went through the you went through the real rulemaking process. And uh, and can can you describe uh, what that entailed? And 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 you came up with rules that people such as Jeannie Sakerson was willing to say on the record um, were a vast improvement <laughs> over what they replaced. And of course, now we're in the process of, of of undoing all that work. Can you talk about like what you came up with, what the process was, and and you know on this as well as what you ended up rescinding and what you ended up replacing with uh, when it came to replacing sex with gender identity, what the basic conceptual problem is when you, uh, when you deal with a law that has to do with women's equality, when you replace the concept of sex with a concept of gender identity. 
Yeah. So as an administrative agency, you're supposed to follow the Administrative Procedure Act. And that is a, a pretty detailed law that requires an agency to only issue binding regulations by going through a, a rulemaking process that, that um, requires the agency to first propose its new rule, uh, then provide for intaking public comments and feedback on the rule. And then before the agency can make its rule final, has to respond to the public comments and, and actually show that it is not acting in an arbitrary or capricious or irrational way, but is actually considering the feedback from the public and having legitimate arguments and, and rationales for why it's setting out the regulation the way it is. It's supposed to take into account the costs and the benefits in a realm like civil rights and non-discrimination. Those often uh, are, are hard to quantify, but but you're supposed to go through that process as an agency. And so we we spent about three years going through that process to issue first a, a well thought out proposed rule after meeting with uh, hundreds of stakeholders, you know, representatives from colleges and universities and school districts, but also from advocacy groups representing victims of sexual harassment and assault and, and people who had been through uh, school and college processes in, in what they viewed as a very kind of railroad unfair way. So we took all of those perspectives into account, proposed a, a written rule and got in, <laughs> Got in uh, more public comments than any rule in the education department's history. That's how uh, controversial and uh, spotlighted this important issue was. And took our time uh, really analyzing those public comments and made a lot of changes to our final rule based on the input from the public. That to me is almost, in, in a weird way, it's almost a more democratic process than going through the legislative process where it's purely represent, representative, right? You have to trust your representatives who you've elected to do their job and, and uh, get feedback from constituents and so forth. But when an agency does it, it's an even more direct uh, public participation process. So that was very, I, I, it was very meaningful. It was not just a check the box exercise uh, on, on my part and a lot of my colleagues' part. We took it very seriously that we wanted to end up with a rule on, on this very sensitive subject that was grounded in first principles and solid legal analysis, but that also took into account the practicalities of a school environment and what would end up working being workable and fair for schools and all of their students uh, that they're that they're trying to balance uh, interests for. Uh, so a little specifically, what we ended up doing is is realizing that if you're gonna, you have to define harassment, sex-based harassment, in order to know what you're even talking about. And for that, we looked to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has a couple of of high-profile decisions on Title IX sexual harassment, and so. While on the one hand, physical conduct like uh, rape and sexual assault and, and dating violence, that kind of conduct it, we made, you know, sort of automatically count as, as, as prohibited harassment. But when it comes to that middle zone of um, not physical harassment or assault of any kind, but you're really talking about speech, you're talking about verbal harassment, things that people write or, or say that offend someone else. We really needed to pull back and follow the Supreme Court's lead in saying this needs to be a pretty 
uh, objective analysis to say at the end of the day is what is, is what is offending somebody really uh, depriving them of, of equal access to, to their education or is it falling in the realm of you know tolerating opinions and viewpoints and you and statements um, that, that may offend you and you may not like but that that's what living in a free society is um, so we took care to define harassment in a in a balanced way like that to protect free speech <clears throat> and then we really um, worked up rules that require a school to take every single report that that it hears of of any kind of harassment or assault very seriously and provide the alleged victim before or without any investigation into the facts even you got to reach out as the school and offer supportive educational measures that that can help somebody deal with the situation and continue their education but that we separated from the school taking any disciplinary or punitive action against the accused perpetrator and for that this, we said the school has to follow certain rules and give both parties an opportunity to participate in the investigation looking into the facts of what happened between these people um, suggesting witnesses that need to be interviewed turning over text messages or or you know sur video surveillance footage i mean whatever there might be that might shed light on the factual uh, circumstances around a particular set of, of sexual harassment allegations. You go through that process. And then if you're at the college or, or university level, um, the school needs to reach a, a decision about whether the accused is responsible or not after holding a live hearing where advisors for the parties can, can pose the kinds of questions to each other that might get at the truth a little bit better, uh, you know, challenge credibility or plausibility of the narrative that's going on. Uh, so that that was kind of the the system that we uh, set out, and we ended up finalizing those regulations to take effect in August of 2020. And so it has not been all that long now before the the Biden administration is ready to um, to to try to undo a lot of that uh, by way of further uh, regulatory amendment. So this painstaking process that you describe, if you contrast it to, and I referred earlier to a kind of quasi-legal act of legal extortion, wherein the prior administration simply sent out a letter saying you must comply with these, um, uh, otherwise you will be subject to investigation and possible withdrawal of your federal funds. Although, of course, never in the history of Title IX has have federal funds ever been withdrawn, um, you know, in concert with the declaration of a of, of a crisis on campus made by the president and the vice president, um, in spite of the fact that we we are talking about, uh, you know, a period in which over the over the last thirty years the number of rapes um, reported in the country had uh, decreased by I believe eighty five percent from from uh, nineteen eighty to twenty ten right around that period. So we're talking about the, the the declaration of a crisis and the declaration of emergency measures, skipping any of this process. Why do you think they skipped the process and simply contented themselves with an act of, of, of pure administrative intimidation um, and, and coercion? Yeah, I, I, there, there's, a, there's a mindset, um, mostly, mostly from the left, frankly, but a mindset that really, I feel like downplays and devalues the structural and process protections that our constitution sets up. 
they really do prioritize their social goal, um, what they view as, as you say, an emergency or, or a social condition that just desperately needs to be fixed, whether or not they're on track and, and on point with identifying that kind of problem. I think it is, um, there's, there's a mindset that, that says no mere process uh, or procedural hurdle should stand in the way of achieving, you know, a wonderful substantive goal. And so things like um, the separation of powers between the executive branch and the legislative branch get, get, get tossed aside and uh, concepts like the, the rule of law that you're not supposed to just dictate by unelected officials and, and bureaucrats uh, sitting in a, an agency department, uh, you are supposed to have a, a process of open public participation in rulemaking. Uh, but those things are seen as, as less important. And from my experience, um, it, th- those kinds of checks and balances procedurally in our system uh, are, are not uh, old fashioned. They're not, um, they haven't become outdated. They're, they're just critical to uh, you may think as a government official that you know what a rule should look like and what a regulation should be until you hear from all sides and all different interest groups and, and people actually affected uh, by what you're proposing. Um, if you're open minded, if you're if you're uh, being rational about it and, and I think just good governing, um, it will change your mind. It will affect how what what you're proposing. And that, that's how it should be. So it was pretty, um, they engaged in, I think, what, what anyone would call an aberrant process. And uh, you went ahead and did a normative process um, that, that, that took a lot of work and resulted in something that many declare to be much more fair than what it replaced. But the Biden administration has declared, and I think it did so right off the bat, that in fact, the labor of, uh, of, of several years of, of arriving at something that would be more fair was in itself uh, something you know abusive or aberrant or or insufficient uh, to the goal, and has thus proposed uh, amendments to what was done. They will this time around go through the process. Uh, what have they proposed? Um, how does it differ from what you had in place? And what is the process going to look like for them going forward? Yeah. So they did. They have proposed a new set of regulations that would uh, undo a lot of the uh, free speech and due process protections that that we put in place under Title IX. And the other huge change is that uh, when we regulated under Title IX, we we took as a given, as um, as has been the case since Title IX was enacted in 1972, we just accepted as a given that when the statute talks about we're uh, on the basis of sex. That means the condition of being male or female. It's a factual, immutable condition. Um, the Biden administration is using this opportunity to not only um, lower the the standards for what would count as sex based harassment, which you know we talk we talked about how that can impact uh, freedom of speech, uh, but also take away the uh, a lot of the water down a lot of the due process protections that both parties in a sex, sex harassment situation are given under current regulations. And then very importantly, the Biden administration is now going to redefine sexual harassment into sex based harassment and based on sex is going to mean um, based on gender identity. Um, uh, now, they would maybe say, oh, we're not, we're not replacing sex. Sex is still there. We're just adding gender identity. 
But if you think about what gender identity is or stands for, it's not defined anywhere in their proposed uh, rule, um, but it's talked about as a pure identification, a self-identification, how somebody refers to themselves in terms of their, their gender. And so you can't have something that undefined and subjective and just put it next to an objective characteristic like sex without the subjective uh, notion automatically or inevitably overriding the objective characteristic. So whatever gender identity is or isn't, um, it has something to do with sex because it has something to do with somebody's perception of whether they are male, female, both, or neither. That's kind of standard gender identity doctrine these days. So when you're dealing with a concept like that, the, the result is going to be that uh, anybody else's refusal or failure to abide by or validate or affirm someone else's um, internal identity, even when it conflicts with um, their factual sex category, that's going to now become uh, swept up in the realm of sex-based harassment. And then as far as sex discrimination, it's now going to be effectively disallowed, illegal under Title IX, uh, for a school to maintain any sex-based categories, any any divisions between you know the boys' side and the girls' side when it comes to sports or intimate facilities or overnight uh, camping trips or you know any any time where historically and traditionally it's been seen as a safeguarding measure or as a women's uh, equal opportunity measure to provide uh, separate but comparable activities for boys and for girls. Any area where that's ever been the case uh, under Title IX is now going to get uh, upended. And in effect, every every activity within the school realm uh, is going to become um, mixed sex. So the practical consequences are, are, are going to be quite enormous. And it's going to, um, it's going to create uh, attention and likely many opportunities for litigation. So what, what's going to happen between now and then before the, you know, the law is actually promulgated or before it's actually, you know, sort of put in place? The rule, yeah. We'll see. I mean, so the, the education department released its proposed rule um, unofficially about two weeks ago. I think it was two weeks ago tomorrow. Um, any day now, the rule will be officially published in the Federal Register. That date is important because it begins the 60-day comment period where the public has opportunity to, to submit comments. Um, once that comment period closes, then the Department of Education can take as short or as long a time as it wants to digest those comments, respond to them, and issue their final rule. I have a hard time seeing them be able to issue their final rule in under a year. Uh, it is possible, but from experience, uh, you get a volume of comments and you're supposed to actually consider each unique one. So I have a hard time seeing them do that in less than a year. But that's about the time frame we're looking at. The rule that they eventually issue can absolutely be challenged by different groups in court. Um, state attorney generals have already expressed um, disagreement with the way that the federal government and the education department has been reinterpreting Title IX. And so groups of state attorneys general may very well challenge this in court, uh, even before it has a chance to be implemented and effective. Congress can weigh in. So, you know, a lot depends on how the elections go and what the makeup of Congress is when the final rule is actually issued by, by uh, the education department. 
Um, so there are question marks still as to how soon and, and how um, uh, easily the education department can actually make this rule effective. What's important, I think, for people to, to understand, though, is that because the, the because the officials in this in this administration, many of whom are exactly the same people, by the way, in offices like the Office for Civil Rights and Education, exactly the same people who were in the Obama Biden administration before, the mindset is the same. They're not waiting. They're not waiting to see what happens and making sure that they've complied with the legal process and that everything is on the up and up procedurally. They are already enforcing according to their desired outcome. So the actual investigations being undertaken by the Department of Education, the way that they're handling complaints that students or schools uh, are getting under Title IX, um, it's already being judged under standards of gender identity is paramount and uh, single-sex spaces now have to uh, be divvied up by by, uh, subjective identity um, and... They've, they've relaxed some of the rules under uh, the, the sexual harassment regulations, although I will give them a little bit of credit. It does not seem, at least in a public-facing way, like they are openly flouting the current uh, due process regulations um, for, that, are, that are in place for sexual harassment investigations right now. They do seem to be waiting to do that until they've gone through the process. But the notion of um, replacing sex with gender identity is already something that they're, that they're actively doing. Um, do, do you know uh, some of the cases, uh, examples where they are moving ahead? A, a couple of the sports-related cases, hmm. um, because it, at the, near the end of the Trump administration, we had, for example, um, issued findings uh, against uh, Connecticut Athletic Association for its uh, what it called a, a trans inclusion policy. But when we examined it, um, we, we determined that it was actually sex discriminatory against female athletes. And so we had issued a, a findings and conclusion along those lines. And the Biden administration uh, reversed that almost on day hmm. one uh, that they came in. There's a similar investigation ongoing, I, I want to say, with Franklin Pierce College, um, where, again, they've, they've just um, reversed course in, in mid, midstream investigation, uh, making it clear that they're, they're not waiting around for mm. uh, issuing their own regulations on it. They're, they're taking the view now that programs or activities in schools need to be based on gender identity. So uh, Shep Melnick, um, who wrote a book called The Transformation of Title IX, talks about a process of administrative leapfrogging where you have different agencies making incrementally uh, more aggressive moves in a particular direction uh, without, and and you can see the law transform over the course of those decisions that are made. So for instance, you know, Bostock actually took care, uh, the decision um, to say that, no, we're not actually enshrining gender I- identity within the law, but many, many agencies are going ahead and acting as if it did. Is that something that the D- Department of Education is now doing? Yes. I, look, the, the Bostock decision is giving the, the Education Department, the Biden administration, a ton of cover, mm. no doubt, because there's a facial appeal to saying your Bostock was dealing with employment discrimination mm. law. Um But the phrasing and purpose and even historical timing of that uh, employment discrimination law, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, very similar in phrasing and purpose to the educational amendments of 1972 that Title IX is in. So there is a facial appeal to say, okay, 
even we may have to at least apply the reasoning of, of Bostock into Title IX. Here's the biggest difference, though, in the fallacy of, of that is that Bostock was not dealing with a situation where the law had already approved of providing something separately but comparably based on sex. Bostock did absolutely nothing to say that when it's okay to treat men and women separately but comparably, um, you, you can't do that anymore. Bostock only had to do with saying, well, let's not, let's not hire and fire people based on how they now identify their own sex. Okay. But, but that, so to use that, that to now say that every single activity in a school environment that has historically uh, been sex separated can no longer be sex separated is, is, is an unjustified leap. So the uh, the global agency that that uh, regulates swimming, uh, you know, recently said that you know they wouldn't be accepting males who had gone through puberty um, as, as uh, transgender women uh, who could compete in women's athletics. And this was, of course, in response to the NCAA permitting one such person uh, to do so. That. Title IX will now intervene in this and, and in the American university context and say that whomever identifies, whomever's gender identity on the basis of self-identification, although it doesn't define it, this is the working definition of the term, counts as a woman. The definition of women who are, who are protected by Title IX is whomever identifies into that category going forward. And this, this will be true across the board in all facilities and uh, not just sports uh, within the university context. Is that, and also in the K-12 K through 12 context, is that that's how it will be interpreted and that's what it will mean in practice. And, and those who dissent from it in speech or in conduct will be in trouble with the federal government. Well, that's right. That's right. The school will, will actually have an obligation to uh, punish as, as sex harassers any individual students or student groups, let's say, that, that want to stand up for um, women's rights or object to, have, to being compelled to use um, you know, gender-based pronouns or um, you know, wanting to have a, a voluntary group or association on campus that is for only for women or only for lesbians, let's say. Those kinds of uh, freedoms of association, speech, thought, belief and unbelief are, are, are uh, very, very much under threat if, if the idea is that offending somebody by not subscribing to their subjective identity or view of themselves is, is now an actual prohibitable offense. So this is an area where gender identity is able to establish its foothold within law to be enforced upon everyone who passes through uh, an institution of higher learning or even through public education in the United States. It's a process that has already sort of uh, worked its way through various progressive and liberal organizations of its own accord. But now we're talking about making a significant step to make this to make it unavoidable and subject to sanction by the federal government. So, you know, you came to my attention as one of the more sort of intelligent analysts of the gender ideology on Twitter. When did you start doing this? And, and, and do you want to talk more about your encounter with the ideology, learning about its tenets, and coming around to, you know, it's exposing its various incoherencies? Yeah, I, you know, the the... The experience of seeing um, 
how and why Title IX is important to equal opportunities for, for women and girls, seeing that up close, it, it's, you know, sexual harassment is, is, a, is a real thing. It does fall disproportionately on girls and women. That, that's, that's certainly true. But there are so many other things that, that Title IX plays into as well. Just the ability and, and obligation of schools, for example, to, to track data based on sex helps us all uh, in and out of government, um, even keep tabs on where there are sex-based disparities. And then we can argue about whether any disparities are, are due to discrimination factors or not. But we need that kind of basic data and information disaggregated by sex. So even at a basic level, if you allow a subjective notion to replace a fact, a, an objective description of, of, of a demographic, uh, you lose the opportunity to to track what's happening to that demographic longitudinally over time and to make any course corrections or adjustments to to make sure that both sexes, by the way, that, you know, women and girls, but also uh, boys and men aren't uh, encountering any unfair or discriminatory barriers to, to equal opportunities in education. So there's a very fundamental problem with um, replacing the ability and obligation of an institution to tell the difference between we're, we're going to factually know who the girls are and who the boys are, and then we're going to be very careful and follow good non-discrimination rules about making sure that we're not pun being punitive or treating any, anybody uh, negatively because they happen to be a girl or, or because they happen to be a boy. That's the general setup of non-discrimination law based on, based on sex. When you introduce an ideologically driven, pretty incoherent concept that proposes from the get-go that anybody's sex, male or female, is only what they choose it to be, is only what they feel it to be, you, you, you become unable to provide any kind of objectively measurable accommodations or adjustments that one or the other particular sex uh, might actually be in need of because the, the rules are now shifting so that your only legal responsibility is to cater to every individual's desire, their own view of themselves. There, there's there's no more class base. There's no more demographic categorization uh, based on based on anything objective anymore. Um, so that that's the fundamental philosophical issue I have with allowing gender identity to encroach into laws. It's always going to affect sex classifications and our ability to track and deter sex discrimination most directly. But if you think about it, the way that an ideology that says that your inner identity is whatever you say it is, that your inner feelings, your inner desires, your, your uh, perception of yourself is unchallengeable, unquestionable, and actually can and does determine or at least override anything factually objective about yourself. That's going to impact sex because this has emerged uh, out of queer theory dealing with sex and sexuality. And so we're talking about an ideology that focuses on your inner gender identity or inner, your inner vision of whether you're male, female, both or neither. But the principle has no limiting principles to it. And so it could, it, it's just as easily 
going to encroach on on any other categorization that we've ever recognized in law as needed to help particular groups with defined characteristics. People with disabilities, people of certain ages uh, need different need different things in law. You know, race, color, and national origin. Every single category that we've ever identified and distinguished among people for the purpose of providing accommodation or special legal attention to what they might need in order to have opportunities equal to people without their characteristics, all of that is in jeopardy. If the law throws out references and and, uh, reference points to objective or or measurable qualities in favor of each individual person's self-declaration about themselves. This is Wesley Yang. You are listening to the Year Zero Podcast, hosted at Substack at wesleyyang.substack.com. So the law depends upon classification and categories when it comes to non-discrimination. You have to be able to define what the protected classes and what their characteristics are. And what gender identity does is it says that this membership is defined by an individual internal subjective criterion that can be known only to the individual, but that once the individual declares it, all others must then comply and participate in that individual's. There's never been a concept like this in the law. The fact that the, the rulemakers behind Title IX, the new, the new proposed changes, have not defined it is an enormous tell. Lawyers define things. That's what they do. And if they leave something undefined, it, it doesn't seem that it can survive any scrutiny by other judges. Is this going to, can this possibly pass any kind of constitutional scrutiny in your view? It's going to be a... It- it's going to be a long road to to get this this um, fundamental issue uh, pushed through the judicial system. Un- unfortunately, over the last handful of years, there are there are plenty of federal judges at the lower court level that have been perfectly willing to buy into this. Um, it's hard to tell whether they're more persuaded by the what I would call um, junk or pseudo science and medical evidence and expert testimony that's presented in these situations whether it's uh, emotional. I think one huge thing is that when you say that um, non-discrimination law does identify a group or based on a, a characteristic in order, to, in, in order to provide protections or accommodations. The group called transgender or gender identity that's incongruent with sex. However you try to describe this group, there's no way for anybody to judge who is or isn't in that category. And so on the one hand, a lot of judges seem to be, uh, and politicians that go along with this too, seem to be very moved by feeling like this is all in service of some defined minority, a tiny minority in our population. Shouldn't we be compassionate and accommodating? It's just a tiny minority. But that's a carryover from when, if you were trying to describe a group at all, you were at least in the realm of describing people with diagnosable and diagnosed, uh, you know, condition like like gender dysphoria. That concept itself, by the way, I think has many 
holes to it conceptually. But at the very least, you were talking about a small percentage of the population with a cross-sex identity. You were still working within the factual binary of recognizing humans come in two varieties, male or female. Are there a small, tiny number of people who, for their own internal psychological reasons, find it very painful to acknowledge the sex they are, and we're going to pretend or, or help create legal fiction for them to switch from one to the other. That was one realm of discussion that society could have, but we have zipped way past that because this is not about cross-sex identity. This is not about this is not about recognizing that everyone's male or female. Are there circumstances where where we're willing to let somebody be treated as though they have switched from one to the other? We're now in the realm of gender identity. Everybody, we're told, uh, has a gender identity. And if your identity, you can make up any kind of word or label or description for it you want. And if it in any way is not apparently completely congruent with, with the sex that you, that you were born as, then you are now in this category of having special legal power and privilege to force everyone in society to, quote, validate or affirm your identity. What, so once you do that, we're not, there, there's no minority suffering population that we're talking about making a few accommodations to, to help out anymore. We're talking about potentially, this is universal. We're told everybody has a gender identity. So the, the potential pool of people who can now claim exemptions from ordinary rules based on their own internal self-perception is is unlimited. So there was a there was a reading of Title IX, and I think it was one that would have been in place for most of its existence, where forcing a group of women to be exposed to a naked man with a you know with his with his penis intact, uh, changing with them in the locker room, would be seen as a a violation and an instance of harassment, rather than on the basis of identification, Leah Thomas is a is a woman and 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 actually has a right to swim and to take to take the place of other members of the squad and to and to take the victories of other uh, women in the field and 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 I think under what you attempted to do while you were in office, it would have been more seen under the previous rubric and but but under the Biden administration um, and despite the the ruling by the by, by the global authorities on swimming that it's not appropriate to have this kind of competition it, it is a it is a single instance of what will become universalized across teams and across other facilities changing rooms dressing rooms and so forth and it will be a drastic change in the life of everyone who is a student to a degree that that I don't think everybody quite uh, anticipates although the argument will be that um, oh, there's a you know it's still a, a small population that's not gonna you know it's not gonna weigh heavily on most people at most times. What is your what what is your sense of this? Uh, I I think it is um, naive at best to to think that this isn't going to um, become more and more prominent as the law and institutional policies support it. And by it, I mean you know the notion that your your personal identity um, gets official legal institutional backing and and support. Um, to me, it's human nature. There, we we uh, react to incentives. There's nothing wrongful about that. It's just how we're built. We react to incentives. And an incentive built into the system that 
um, by, by merely uttering some words, by talking about myself a certain way that I can get a privilege, that I can get an easier road on something, that I can get a benefit I wouldn't otherwise get. That, that's the kind of incentive that, that humans are, are bound to follow. Even in the sports realm, we, you know, you already see that, um, there, we've got a pretty good track record. I feel like in this country of integrity in sports, cheating happens of course, but we actually overall have a very strong shared norm that is self-regulating and self-governing that there's a, uh, an ethical commitment and desire to win fairly and to, you know, to compete fairly. So when you, when the incentive rewards moral cheating by giving it a legal stamp of approval, uh, I, I think that that kind of self-regulation uh, of, um, you know, ethics and, and voluntarily committing yourself to playing by the fair rules uh, starts to crumble and starts to disintegrate. And that's going to be a very, a very sad um, consequence of, of this kind of legal switch from objective rules that are supposed to apply as universally as possible to let's make up the rules uh, and cater to, to each individual person's desires. So there are some uh, on the Democratic side, uh, pundits who are saying, you know, in anticipation of electoral consequences for pushing through, you know, policies on sports and other areas where the polling says it's, you know, they, they, they face a very hard road um, and, they, and there may be a penalty for uh, attempting to push this through that the Democrats should moderate on this. It's my view, however, that the Democrats actually can't moderate uh, on this because they have defined this as a human and civil rights issue. There's a certain faction within the party that is, uh, it's a kind of inner party that is, that, that governs through, through laws, through activism, through administrative rulemaking that is fully invested in pursuing this course and, and has not, and has deliberately not left itself any room for uh, moderation. And so what it means is, is that if we want to see this, if we want to see what's going to happen is, is that people are going to have to feel some of the consequences and feel some of the pain and, and for there to be a political remedy to it rather than one that is going to be done in anticipation of consequences. Um, is that your, is that your analysis? And, uh, and, and if there's a Republican victory, do you see herself, uh, you know, sort of uh, returned to your old role? I think a lot of that analysis is is spot on. I, I think people, it, I think it's taken people a long time to uh, realize that when it comes to when it comes to the premises of gender identity itself as a notion, as a concept, there there's no there's no moderate position to be had. Because and that's why you're seeing it be all or nothing among, on the side of the the party that has embraced this is that if they try to compromise or moderate, what does that look like? What does that mean? The entire concept falls apart. Again, if you're going to base what what is right and wrong in the law on, on the core tenets of of gender identity. It is all or nothing. And you have to maintain the fiction. You have to maintain the pretense. You have to enforce the pretense universally. Because if you admit that in one context, like sports, oh, well, there, we shouldn't honor gender identity. We should go ahead and, and make everybody play by the rules of sex. But if you do that there, you've lost 
all of the conceptual ground for, well, then why not for prisons? Why not for rape shelters? Why not for domestic violence uh, housing? Why not for school bathroom? I mean, why not for anything at that point? So you have, they have to maintain the all or nothing on that side of it. The only way forward to even have a notion of what would be moderate in this regard is for them to give up on the idea of gender identity and go back to talking about what about people who are just psychologically cross-sex identified? You know, let's have that conversation. But we're within the realm of reality, again, with the binary, immutable nature of, of human sexual dimorphism. That would be a different conversation, but but that's not the conversation that, that they're willing to have right now. I can't think of another... I can't think of a precedent for life for anything as as um, as lawless uh, as this being enshrined into law. Can can anything is subversive to the whole idea of a rule of law? Can can you? <laughs> um, no, I think you'd have to stretch back to and and appropriately analogize the dominance of gender identity. Uh, theory holding the the reins of power in in governments and institutions, you'd have to go back and and identify throughout history where that's happened with uh, religious mm. denominations. If you hand the reins of of state power and institutional power throughout society over to over to rulemakers who are basing their decisions on answering to the will of God or on fulfilling a, a sacred uh, religious text. You are going to get the same feel that we're in right now of irrationality, arbitrariness, unfairness, palpable harm, but none of it matters. None of those downsides matter because they are pursuing the greater good. It is always, by their definition, going to be for the greater good to be in pursuit of God's goodness and God's will and and divine mandates for humanity. It does not matter what kind of material consequences or negative uh, harms are caused to to any anyone or groups of people because of that. And there, there's a there's a there's a uh, very strong analogy, I think, to to what's going on now. The only difference is that I think gender identity theory is hiding behind pseudoscience and civil rights, and so it's not having to admit nobody who is a proponent of of gender identity uh, theory is having to admit how very, very spiritual and faith-based and, uh, and you know, belief in the miraculous and the counterfactual uh, that, uh, that this theory really is. So uh, they, they, have, they have successfully managed to camouflage themselves as a civil rights movement, and they have been able to evade the ban on the establishment of religion uh, because I often tweet and ask, there's there's nothing in the First Amendment that says that you can't establish an astroturf pseudo-morality or entrenched into law. And this is, in fact, what we have done. A handful of activists, uh, people who work for nonprofits, uh, some academics who once were in very obscure departments, uh, invented an idea. Really, it coalesced into the form that it's now taking right around 2009. You, you happen to have some co-activists or co-religionists that, that happened to occupy certain places within the Office of Civil Rights within the Department of Education, and through their own executive fiat, evading the rulemaking process, they were able to inject within society and within the structure of our law and within one of our leading political parties, 
um, an idea that does not withstand even the barest rationalist or rational scrutiny, and to have carried along with them a significant part of the public because the partisan hostility around this um, you know, produces those who are willing to um, you know, rise to the defense of whomever they're able to portray as being endangered and, and threatened by menacing forces on the right. Um, and, and, and that's the situation that we're in today, despite the fact that there is a supermajority of the public who still responds to this intuitively and says, no, there's actually a difference. And y- you cannot simply be, and our laws cannot recognize a subjective feeling as being determinative of a whole class. Like, people get it. People get it intuitively. People are correct. Their instincts are sound in recognizing this. Um, but we're, we're on this moral, political, and ideological cliff where we have a party that is that cannot say no to this, all of whose legislatures are going to vote in concert for a Gender Recognition Act that's going to do similar kind of work in the legislative branch to what was done in the university. And it can do nothing but 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 be the cause of political confrontation, which is what is happening uh, because because we have state houses that tend to be controlled by Republicans, and we have we have a national government that is for the moment controlled by Democrats. If if Republicans get control uh, of the national government as well as its state governments, um, then we will have a confrontation between state power and then and cultural power uh, between what the teachers want to teach, between what the culture industries want to promote, between what the uh, message making apparatus of the Democratic Party uh, will support, trans genocide, trans Holocaust, if these various entities uh, cease to recognize uh, gender uh, identity, um, it will all be portrayed in those terms. So rolling back rulemaking to the status quo ante of 2017 or 2013, the one that all trans people who are alive today lived in, who were alive in 2013 and 2017, is genocide, it's fascism, it's a return to all these things, uh, when in fact, all it is is a rollback to um, a reality-based uh, recognition that, that, like all other mammals... You know, we are a, a, a sexually dimorphic species, and if we're going to make laws on the basis of that, it has to be done on the basis of identifiable categories, and there is no actual um, uh, criteria by which to distinguish those categories other than uh, the, the gametes that their bodies produce as a function of their, of their biologically differentiated uh, morphology <laughs> and genomes. It, there is a bedrock reality to that fact that is going to be on the ballot and that is, is going to remain on the ballot uh, for this foreseeable future until such point as someone within one of these institutions uh, reaches the conclusion that it is legally and politically untenable. We may never reach that point, though. Uh, so what is your sense of the prospects of how this is going to work out going forward? I do think that there there is going to be a... Um, a collapse. I, I think that we will go over over the cliff um, metaphorically, and uh, there will be a, a a a collapse of the false consensus that that is out there right now. Um, I think it will it'll be a combination of of uh, pursuing things through uh, the legal system and continuing to press the judiciary into 
being a backstop for for some rationality and objectivity in legal systems. Um, I think the the parent uprising throughout uh, the country is going to be a, a a driver of this because it's it's actually quite non political. Um, and you know the elections will will swing and and go back and forth a bit. Um, I don't think anybody, especially with certain recent events, is I, I'm not sure very many people who are uh, highly skeptical of gender identity uh, are all that excited about trusting Republicans with the reins of power for many other reasons. And so um, I don't think that we're looking at some you know flip flop where. You know, you could you could argue liberals have dominated for, you know, you know, a decade on this issue. And then it's going to be a long term domination by Republicans. I, I don't I don't think that's what we're in for either. Uh, but I but I do think that socially this is going to start breaking down so that even if we are left with policies on the books in, in a lot of institutions and in a lot of ways, and we should pay attention and clean up, you know, what's on the books because it's not good to have it there. But I think that I think the bubble is going to burst in terms of the collective willingness to to uh, to actually act this out. It's one thing to parrot the, the mantra, you know, trans women are women, trans men are women, non-binary is valid. It's one thing to parrot the, the words. It's another thing to carry it out in all aspects of society. And I think we are going to see uh, less and less willingness to to do that. It, we're not we're not there yet. We're seeing little cracks the first thing we had to get past, and we finally are starting to at least see this phase, first thing we had to get past was um, just this, the absolute policy of no debate. You can't raise this in public. You can't speak about doubts. You can't express any questions or skepticism. Uh, all media outlets will be absolutely closed to you if you try. That is starting to crack a little bit. And, and that, is, that is sort of the first phase of uh, a collective reckoning with, with the... <laughs> The insanity that we've, that we've allowed to, to take over official struct, uh, structures. So despite all of the energy and the collective will and the unanimity among a certain class of people in order to prevent these things uh, or, or to move us in a direction where it ceases to be the case, America is still a free country. <laughs> we, we still have a First Amendment and we're going to be able to address realities and we're going to be able to speak to people who are able to uh, see those realities, even if the, these conversations are not going to happen in, uh, in, in the various captured institutions where, where the rules have been imposed. And imposed very recently, you know, because like, the, you know, the, the article that, that Pamela Paul wrote recently uh, in The Times, sort of going through various um, sort of turf adjacent, you know, arguments about gender identity. And, you know, sort of articulating it through a kind of misogyny type framework. Um, similar arguments were made in the Times in 2015. You know, the memo that that was verboten happened not that long after, and the prohibition lasted not that long. <laughs> and, and, and now we're able to say these things. And all that changed in the interim was that there was a process of capture of, you know, various progressive institutions in the meantime, among them the presidency of the United States. But we still remain a free country with First Amendment protections. And uh, despite all of that, they may fail, <laughs> despite their best efforts, although we should make note of what their intention and their best efforts are, how contrary they are to uh, widely held uh, values that are constitutive what this country are, and that 
uh, allowing the debate to happen. So like there was no real official debate, for instance, right, around defund and abolish the police. You know, it was you were supposed to believe this and and you were not supposed to dispute it. But public sentiment, including, above all, a supermajority of black and Hispanic voters, just was so overwhelming in rejecting these slogans that the party had to pivot. And they have pivoted in their rhetoric and to some degree in, in their policies. Nonetheless, defund and abolish police is ultimately, in addition to being like a progressive meme, it, it boils down to municipal budgets. It boils down to a matter of normal politics. Whereas when, when we're talking about human and civil rights, we're talking about something that exists on a different plane than normal politics. And so it's going to be that much harder to dislodge. And in fact, I don't know if we have a precedent of this thing, of, of something that wrapped itself in this rubric has ever been dislodged. And so the sense of inevitability that they have is derived from all of the prior triumphs that they were able to go through in the past. Like in, in 1990, you had a you had a robust majority of Democratic legislators who supported the Defense of Marriage Act. And then, you know, less than two decades later, the, 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 the legal situation had transformed and public opinion had transformed with it. And so there's a similar sort of chiliastic certainty, right, on the part of those who are believers of gender identity, that the same things will happen um, with this issue. You may have a public that is opposed to it. You may have some misgivings within the liberal uh, or even the progressive coalition. But what happened with the, the last issue that was a great sort of human civil rights crusade must necessarily happen with this one. I mean, I believe that the reality is such that, like, we won't see that happen. What would be your argument to those who have that sense of inevitability? Um, I, I think that it, it is, um, it comes down to people realizing that, that the gender identity movement has, has only captured as much uh, public sentiment and empathy as it has because it's been riding the coattails of of other civil rights of, of civil rights movements but the, as people start to unpack what's being demanded by the gender identity movement it is so foreign and so different than any other um, minority rights movement uh, that that society has grappled with and and made progress with um, there, it is um, it's really flipping upside down it's not just asking hearts and minds to change in how a person with a characteristic is viewed. It's not about tolerance. It's not about uh, making a characteristic that has been used negatively against people not matter anymore. It's not about any of that anymore. It's, a, it's an affirmative, positive demand on society to subscribe to beliefs and and propositions that are so palpably factually false it, it, it's asking us to give up our own perceptions and human evolutionary instinctive recognition that there that there are two sexes and we know who's who because it's not enough to because again this isn't under the pretense of let's help a minority of people who are psychologically suffering with which sex they are this is about let's pretend to wholeheartedly believe that someone's declaration about themselves creates reality. That, that's not asking for public opinion to change or public morals to shift on 
Um, you know, whether, whether we're going to express and just instinctively collectively react with moral disgust to the idea of homosexuality, let's say. It's not about asking people to change their, or, uh, to change their, um, their moral judgments of anybody. It's asking, it's demanding that, that society set aside their factual perceptions of reality. Th- those are very different asks. Mayor Bloomberg uh, made some comments to this effect, just speaking from his basic political in, uh, instincts and his moral intuitions that there's something very different about the asks that are being made by the gender identity movement. And I don't think he fully understood what the gender identity movement was or entailed, but I think anybody that encounters it will have the same response, that it's something very different than the, the gay rights movement. And he sort of made an argument, a, a very cogent and well-argued argument, that this is not going to fly. It's not the same kind of thing. And of course, you know, he, he had to bend the knee, he had to apologize, he had to repudiate his prior uh, comments. And the last time around, everybody did have to do that. <laughs> and the party is now more uh, fully entrenched and on board with this than ever before. But the world in its particulars, in its evolutionary history, and in its reality has not changed since Bloomberg made that statement. And, and of course, the argument that you're making is that in the end, you know, that will prove out dispositive, although who knows what it will entail to get there, right? Because Soviet Union was able to last two or three generations um, persisting in a falsehood at the end of it, all their attempts in undoing you know, gender uh, distinctions left behind a society that, you know, if you, if you browse Instagram, right, you know, gender dualism survived, right? Like an attempt to try to rid themselves of it um, with a tremendous violence and uh, tremendous coercion. So given that example, we can have some confidence that reality will continue to be reality um, forever, <laughs> but, but we can ask whether it's going to be a matter of decades uh, or multiple generations uh, before we get there and and how much how much coercion and insanity we will have to witness in the meantime you seem maybe a little bit optimistic that we're already starting to see some cracks and that our normal first amendment our normal free press and so on is going to be enough to kind of get us through this as it starts to bite in on us is that is that generally how you feel that like you know we're not going to go through a period of, a, of of abnormal and aberrant politics the way that the Soviet Union had to in order to return to reality? Well, I mean, part of the reason that I, I dedicate as much time and focus as I as I do to this issue is I, I think if if we're not careful, if if we're not very, if we don't put a lot of dedicated attention to what is really going on, uh, we we could very well end up in that kind of actual dystopia. That you know, all of a sudden it you know, will be the boiled frog, and look around and think, well, wait a minute, this is this isn't America anymore, and uh, what happened to to our freedoms, etc. So it's possible that that happens, and that's why I think I think it's so critical that that this stay at the top of um, discussion and awareness and and open pushback uh, until that false consensus has been broken through, until there's a a, a very real feeling of, okay, we can all speak freely. And even if there are some law, some bad laws because of this that remain on the books, they're not being taken seriously. Um, you know, men are not actually being moved over into women's prisons. 
they all they all went back. But in order to get to that point, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not optimistic enough to think that necessarily it's enough to just sit back and feel confident that our uh, historical um, constitutional protections, let's say, will, will, will carry the day. I think when you look at some of the decisions that are coming out around gender identity right now and, and analyzing challenges under things like First Amendment, equal protection, um, we are seeing a willingness right now to <laughs> exploit any exceptions that we've also historically had. You know, for example, you know, should the government impose uh, viewpoint preferences and punish people for not expressing, um, you know, the preferred viewpoints? Well, no. In fact, the government can never do that except in these narrow, narrow circumstances. And what we're seeing right now is a trend to read a whole lot of vague exception swallowing the rule stuff into those exceptions. We've always had to have exceptions. No, none of our rights are, have ever been absolute. You know, fire in a crowded theater, example after example um, of, of what are the limits on, on everybody's individual freedoms. So, so it, it is going to take um, a lot of careful, concerted, dedicated um, work to reinvigorate and hold on to what what the core purposes of of those kinds of freedoms are. I also would not be surprised if truly putting this chapter behind us and getting back to the liberal enlightenment project that that we've been on is, is uh, may very well take adding at the you know constitutional level uh, based on what we're what we're seeing, what we're facing what the um, resistances and challenges to basic reality and fairness are right now, um, it, you know, it very well could take a super statute or a constitutional amendment that just ensconces and, and just reaffirms um, basic reality that nobody in history has ever ha felt the need to have to codify before. And what, what would that form look like in your view? Uh, it, it yeah, it, it could take it could take the form of a constitutional amendment that um, you know actually describes and defines and outlines what sex is, and that you know humans come in two of them, and that that's subjective and factual. And I, I mean, you could imagine um, something that that hits a reset button that would be at the constitutional level, so that it would it would have to trickle down um, and override policies that are attempting to, you know, do away with, uh, with, uh, recognition of sex in law. So, so what do you see your own role in, in this, uh, in this, uh, in this fight? <laughs> well, right now I'm, I'm active with uh, women's liberation front in terms of they're, they're involved in the only, the only active litigation on the, on the prison men in prison front, um, that, I, that I'm aware of right now. So trying to take specific action and, and, you know, apply my background as an attorney to be helpful in that way. Um, I'll keep screaming into the Twitter void just to uh, share um, for whatever it is ever worth. Hopefully observations and analysis of the, the, the underpinnings and kind of what's really going on here and why this has this kind of worldview has started to appeal to people to hopefully help people be able to find the confidence to you know, to challenge it and know that uh, being skeptical of, of what you're seeing around you with this right now do doesn't make you a bad person. You're not not anti-gay. You're not not uh, anti-minority rights or anti-equality. It's actually being very pro keeping us on 
the path of having the the freedom, the tolerance, the pluralism, the secularism in our legal systems that allow us to get better and better at recognizing the uh, objective uh, needs and ways in which uh, certain groups still have a need for uh, accommodations or, or so forth. We, we have to have that. I mean, it is a worldview that depends a lot on acting as if they are in possession of some esoteric wisdom um, and that where there is contradiction, you know, it's going to be resolved the more you know about it. And, and I guess you went through a process of, you know, looking at that and seeing whether there actually was something there. Uh, and, and I think I went through a similar kinds of process. And, and it is just a, a bunch of self-contradictory and pretty incoherent assertions that can only be held together through coercive force. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, it is so absurd. The propositions that we're expected to believe are, are so um, contradictory and illogical and irrational, and, and you're supposed to excuse harmful consequences caused by them. Um, that, that it, it's true. I think a lot of us go through a phase of, of thinking, well, I must be missing something. I mean, they, they must know something intricate and, and specialized, uh, that, that, that I just am not, and am not privy to, but you're right. The more you unpeel it, the more you realize that, I mean, that this is something that emerged out of, um, academics heads. This is, this is always and always been completely divorced from material reality. This has always only, you know, come out of, uh, you know, an academic thought experiment of, Hey, what if we changed the way that we use language? What if discourse could disrupt power? I mean, it's just, it's all been theoretical and the queer project aspect of this has by definition set itself up with the goal of contradicting itself, um, of problematizing everything about the way society operates. Um, and, and so it's not a surprise any longer to realize that um, internal inconsistencies and flat out contradictions in their own propositions are, are you know, they're features. They're not, they're not bugs at all. They're not the, you know, the proponents of, of gender uh, identity aren't bothered at all um, by uh, being told that they're being contradictory. They, they don't care. It, it's, it's part of the, the tactic and, and in a way part of the goal, because if you can get society to, um, to drop logic, to drop rationality, to drop reason, um, then you, you really, you really can at least pretend, um, that, that all injustices have, have just disappeared because all it takes is talking about it a certain way. Okay. Um, well, uh, thanks a lot. Um, this has been a very interesting conversation, and uh, and I think hopefully we'll uh, talk again um, as we as we uh, explore this 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 very strange issue. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. This is the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack, where you can go to read my writings and where you can subscribe personally. To enable the continuation of this work at wesleyyang.substack.com.